0: Good evening, dummies. Episode one seventy seven. Friday, June twenty fifth, eight thirty one p.m. It's Friday night. It is Red Friday. Remember, everyone deployed. Man, I love going live. I really enjoy it. I, I, I wish we had thousands of people on. I, I know we'll get there someday. I, I never thought we'd be at twenty one thousand followers. I talk about it all the time. I'm excited about it, but there's just something special about talking to people who, I don't know, I wouldn't say admire. That's not the word I'm looking for. They weigh your words as important. It's humbling. I never thought I would have that big of an audience. I've spoken in front of crowds of 5,000 people before in leadership. But not like this. It's just different. And it's addicting. And you want to represent well and the the more that i do it the stronger that i feel that it's okay to say different things that may not be popular and people will forgive or not maybe forgive but absolve me of my idiocy for moments i try to bring different perspective and yes i'm a conservative and yes i bring that perspective to just about every conversation but i also appreciate other points And I like to learn about what other people think, as long as it is factual and that it's passionate. Like I said, the Greeks in their obituaries don't ask if a person was rich or how many wives he had or how much property. They simply ask if they live with passion. That's important for me. And no matter how long I'm on this mortal coil, I will try to be passionate about what I do. This is why I try to bring honesty to the show. And I try to bring you Maybe not complete sides, because people can watch my show and they'll be like, that was 90% conservative. I'm like, yes, but there were points there where I did lean into the left and say, I can understand their point. I did this with critical race theory. We should absolutely educate everybody on the trials and tribulations of African-Americans, Native Americans, Asian-Americans, Pacific Islanders. We can go on and on. It's important. It's history for God's sakes. And we have whitewashed history. There's so much that's not there. It needs to be talked about. But on the other hand, we don't need to completely take away white history simply because it's not popular either. Anyway, I digress. What the hell are we talking about tonight? Well, it's going to be a good show. I always say that. I know I always say that. I should probably find another tagline. Bill Maher is the devil. Advocate? Wait, what? Playing devil's advocate? Listen, I've watched Bill Maher since i was a little boy i watched politically incorrect i knew there was two things i wanted to be when i grew up tom cruise and be a navy pilot well that didn't happen i did join the navy and did something useful not saying being a pilot isn't i was too too dumb to be a pilot but the second thing is i wanted to be a politician ronald reagan Ollie north both of them combined when i watched the iran contra hearings just sparked something in me i wanted to make political influence well i made some choices that I could never run for office. Holy crap. If anyone got a hold of that stuff, I wouldn't be embarrassed. I would just probably be in jail. So, no. But we're going to talk about Bill Maher tonight. And I want you to hold on because you're going to be surprised. And I want you to open your mind. And I know you're probably going to say, oh, well, it's a one-off. No, it's not. It's not a one-off at all. In fact, if you listen to anything that I say, I am heavily influenced by Bill Maher, Mike Rowe, Ben Shapiro, Larry King. Mike Wallace, Walter Cronkite, and a lot of others. I tend to have a smorgasbord of people. Dennis Miller, Ron White. We talked about this in the live live show. I admire a lot of different people. And Bill Maher is somebody who I have in my collective. Why? Because there's things that he says that makes me think differently. And there's some things that disgust me. But it's all worth talking about. We're going to do that tonight. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. No, I didn't say that. A gentleman named Roosevelt said that. But I will tell you, it's important. How to be courageous. How to be brave. These are attributes that people don't necessarily worry about. They either come by osmosis or they're a learned behavior. It's not something you're born with. A born leader, there's no such thing. We'll talk about that tonight. And lastly, let go of me lucky charms. There is no such thing as luck. People ask me, do I believe in karma? Yes, but I don't believe in luck, and there's a difference. Luck is something that happens to you that you didn't earn. Karma is most assuredly something you can earn. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to dive deep. This might be a little bit of a self-help. Maybe I'm sucking up. I'm going to do some self-help, some self-reflection, where you're going to have to hear about Bill Maher, and then some self-help again. Nothing like a self-help sandwich to get you through the day, folks, but either way, I promise you this. You, in the end, will either love me, hate me, agree or disagree. All I ask is that you don't unfriend me. What's a suicide bomber's biggest fear? Easy. Dying alone.
1: Recorded from an undisclosed
0: location. Always honest. Always direct. So, sit back, relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. All right, folks. Well, thank you once again. Who am I? What do I do? Who is your daddy? What does he do? Get to the chopper, get down. My name is Matt Spear. I am your host. Who am I? Nobody really important. I am a conservative but socially a liberal. I have independent leanings. I don't have many socialist or progressive viewpoints. In fact, none. And I guess you could call me a Republican, a disenfranchised Republican. But either way, I believe that political parties are the same shit, but a different pile. So there's that. There is a donkey and an elephant on my logo for a reason. Why? Well, because I want to try to bring people together by ripping their ideas apart. I know, it might be counterproductive, but either way, welcome to my show. What do we do here? We talk about current events, we talk about politics, sometimes sports. My kids make appearances, I go live before shows now and talk to my dummies, and that's most assuredly what my listeners are. No, you're not dumb, it's the don't unfriend me's. It's an acronym, and Barstool Sports have their stoolies, we have dummies. We also have dum-dums. Dumdums are a special kind of sucker, and they come out once in a while, and I talk about them. Tonight, I don't have a dum dum to talk about because we have too many other things to discuss. What if you don't want to go on social media? Well, you can find me on Facebook and Anchor and YouTube, but if that's not your particular brand of vodka, you can go to DonutFriendMe.com, and you can find my catalog there, my blog, and some ideas I've written down, and all that other stuff and it just gives you a chance to stay off social media. So if that's what you want to do, please go over there and follow me. You can also find my podcasts on all major podcast platforms. You can go to Anchor and find them all there or you can go to Facebook, Instagram, whatever. While you're there, please throw me a like, share and subscribe. That little red envelope on YouTube is right here or you can back out of the video and just hit a like and hit a follow. Please do both because then that will make sure that you're going to be updated on your news feed. You know, Facebook throttles my algorithm because I disagree with a lot of what Facebook says, and then they do that to conservative voices. So please like, share, follow, or subscribe, or I may never see you again, and that would be a travesty or a positive thing, depending upon your outlook. Tonight, you know what we're going to go after, so let's do it together. Bill Maher is the devil advocate. When I talk about Bill Maher is important. He is not a hero of mine. He's not somebody that I necessarily think is the greatest human being on the planet. But I'm going to show you a video tonight and I want you to do me a favor before we get into the topic because I'm going to do another one first. I want you to give it a chance. I know there are plenty of reasons for you not to like the guy. I'm not asking you to watch him. I'm not asking you to love him. I'm not asking you to agree with him. But if you think that he is just this ultimate lefty, horrible human being who's deplorable, who never has had a good idea, I will tell you this, a broken clock is right twice a day. And there have been many hours in the day that Bill Maher have been right most recently. Now that Donald Trump's out, his Trump derangement syndrome is gone, and the somewhat balanced Bill Maher is back and we'll be talking about that tonight I just wanted to preface that it's going to be in the middle of the show like I said so first we're going to do let go of me lucky charms don't be a wishful thinker don't waste your mental muscles dreaming of an effort effortless way to win success it doesn't happen we don't become successful simply through luck success comes from doing those things and mastering those principles that produce success David Schwartz said that You might see some motivational conversations through Jocka Wilnick or a few of the other SEALs that have done amazing shows that I tried to emulate and believe in. And I will tell you, none of them say I was lucky. Everybody's got a story why they didn't accomplish something. The marketplace wasn't ready. Someone else screwed up. The economy was no good. It was all just about bad luck. They didn't like me because of the color of my skin or that I peed sitting down. But the truth is, there's no such thing as luck. It's just another excuse. Nothing happens without a cause, folks. The weather today didn't just happen. It's a result of specific causes. Solar radiation heats the Earth's crust, bounces across the polar ice caps, the poles, creates convection, ultimately goes over warm water, creates condensation, and you have a storm or you have wind. It's not by accident. There is purpose behind all intent, except for Hillary Clinton's intent, of course. Likewise, the difference between being successful or unsuccessful will not come from luck, but the choices you make throughout life. And here's how to forget about luck and really achieve what you want. Assume you have complete control over everything that happens in your life. I know, that goes against everything you believe. Everything that happens in your life comes a result of your own responsibility, not merely outside of your force. Grant Cardone said that. A lot of people like to say, you can't control everything in the world. And this is completely true, but you can control everything in your own world. Whatever happens, you are in control of your thoughts and actions, which gives you complete control of all the events that event that occur in your life. If, for example, the power randomly goes out in your home, you may have had nothing to do with that, but you still have absolute control over how well prepared you are and the actions you take in such an event. The one thing I'm so proud of is when Hurricane Harvey hit us in Houston, my neighbors and I had prepared, except for one who was next door who told me it was going to be nothing but a light rainstorm. I asked him day three when he was walking through knee-high water how he felt about it then. I was never so unhappy to be right in my life. The point is, is we had barrels of water ready to go, we had food, we had dry ice, and we made sure that we were locked, loaded, and prepared for whatever came around the corner even when all four roads out of our town were under 12 to 15 to 20 feet of water. How would we get out? We had neighbors who could make sure that we got out. And that is what is important, to always be prepared. The Boy Scout motto, or may I say the genderless neutral Scouts of America. Now, this is an enormous responsibility that most people don't want. They don't want to be planners. They don't want to think ahead. They don't want to be responsible if it goes wrong. Most people would rather blame their circumstances on the government, the economy, their neighbor, or anything else that means they're not calling the shots. But blaming will not improve your circumstances. To get where you want to go in life, you must accept the fact that whatever occurs in your world is your responsibility, And when you assume this level of power to control everything, you have the power to change everything. Taking complete ownership of your outcomes by holding no one but yourself responsible for them is the most powerful thing you can do to drive your success. Gary Keller said that. You don't need to rely on luck to get what you want. Just write your own winning lottery ticket. By writing your own lottery ticket, not by sudden accumulation of wealth, but the gradual reduction to what you decide is essential in your life. Everybody's probably dreamed of what their life would look like if they won the lottery, and why not? It's probably an incredibly bright future, but the odds of winning the lottery is said to be 1 in 14 million. To win, you would have to be incredibly lucky, and as you know, there is no such thing as luck. The good things is that you don't have to rely on luck to live your lottery winnings life. See, I don't think people fantasize about winning the lottery just for the money at all. That amount of money would probably ruin your life, not make it better. And most people who win the lottery will tell you that. What most of us really want is freedom. Complete freedom to focus on the things that matter most in our lives. And the freedom to lead a lifestyle that makes us feel fully alive and fulfilled. 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 Gee, man, my redneck come out there? Holy shit, man. Look at that over there. That's a beautiful sunset in that fun field. Woo. I love it. Henrietta, give me a piece of straw and a beer, bitch. Thank you. You don't need to amass amounts of money to have that lifestyle. You don't even have to quit your job. All it takes is to appreciate what you have and to do the things you consider essential for your life in the time that you have. We always tend to undervalue what we have in the present and overvalue what we will have in the future, which leaves us never quite fulfilled. When you begin to filter out the unessential things from your life and appreciate what you have, you realize you already have a lottery-winning life. Do you know the math behind a human being? You fucking won the lotto. You won. You're a fucking person. Congratulations. Gary Vaynerchuk. In conclusion, it's not about the cards you're dealt, but how you play the hand. Randy Posh, the last lecture that most people will remember. Most people will continue to blame their circumstances on bad luck and government and anything else they think of, but you don't become successful simply through luck. And you certainly don't accomplish anything by leaving someone else in charge of the outcomes for your life. As Gary Vaynerchuk said, congratulations, you're human. You're about to find out who you really are is what that means. Money doesn't change that. You'll find out your vulnerabilities. You will find out who your friends are. You will find out what it's like to have everything you want and still feel completely empty at the same time because materialism does not mean a damn thing. It just means you're going to spend more and you most assuredly spend what you're worth. And then some. You have complete control over everything that happens in your life and you can decide today to live your lottery winnings life. You don't need relying on luck or have a sudden accumulation of wealth. I know a girl who is probably 23 years older. Her name is Albie Shaw. Albie doesn't like me very much because we were good friends. We did a lot of things together. Her brother is a dear friend of mine. I love him unequivocally and I love her too and I still do even though she's pissed at me because of my uh, thoughts on transgender people and I don't care. I'm not going to change my opinion because she doesn't like it and she would never change hers because she doesn't like mine or I don't like hers. But she has been to more places. She travels the world incessantly. She's all over the place. Every week, she's somewhere new. And she works hard for that. And she will work her job, and then she will take her money, and not necessarily blow it on materialistic things. She'll buy a plane ticket for $275 and go wherever she wants to be, and she will sign up for places where she can stay with other people. She'll build relationships, and she loves that life. It terrifies the shit out of me. I've been all over the world too, and the places that I've seen. I would never allow a girl of her beauty to do so, but she's independent and tough, and I love her for it. She is living her lottery life. The misnomer is that luck is never about fortune. It is always about hard work and opportunistic seizure. It is about taking advantage of the things that happen. And if you call that lucky, I call it being astute and frosty and situational awareness. Remember, although it may be happening to you, it is happening because of you. Always remember that. Bill Maher is the devil advocate. A lot of you may know Bill Maher, a lot of you may turn him off, a lot of you may hate him, it doesn't matter, just don't unfriend him. Bill Maher rose from being an edgy, opinionated comedian to becoming one of the most influential and recognizable faces in our media. His political talk show, Real Time with Bill Maher, has been on HBO since 2003, spanning 17 seasons with over 500 episodes to date. Real Time continues to be one of the most popular shows on cable TV, drawing in more than 4 million viewers per episode. This kind of frames him as a straight-shooting satirist on an anti-hypocrisy crusade, with Marr presenting himself as the voice of liberals across the country fed up with PC culture. Certainly, he has a legion of dedicated, primarily Democratic-voting baby boomer and Generation X fans who take seriously his every pronouncement. That is why his latest outbursts are noteworthy. On the September 20th edition of Real Time, and this was last year, he condemned the Democrats for reviving their opposition to Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, claiming that continuing to go after a guy for what he did in high school looks bad. He implied that Democrats lost seats in the Senate for their Preposterous opposition to what Kavanaugh did when he was just 17, which, for the record, was multiple alleged attempted rapes or sexual assaults that have not fruit, no fruit has bared from this labor. Nothing has been proven. In fact, a lot came out that three of the allegations were completely false and made up. And the most prominent one with whatever Blasey Ford, whatever the hell her name was, I don't even remember, was that she was prompted by what would be known as the prosecution, and her personal lawyers to say things that weren't true. She didn't remember where, when, or how, or if he was even there. But somehow, nothing happened to her, but it was extremely uncomfortable. The point is that Mars' beliefs, actions, and outbursts, if they are coherent at all, are not consistent with liberalism and are, if anything, more in keeping with a right-wing shock jock like Rush Limbaugh. A week previously, Marr appeared on MSNBC's flagship breakfast show, Morning Joe, where he claimed that the Democrats' left wing, i.e. Bernie Sanders, was a cancer destroying the party, warning that the left is scarier and crazier than Trump, and nominating a leftist at its presidential candidate would spell disaster in the next election, decreeing the supposed in elect, the unelectable of the left is a favorite pastime of elite pundits. Media almost unanimously present Marr as a liberal or even a progressive. Yet an inspection of his political positions dispels this illusion. To be sure, he generally supported President Barack Obama and he opposed Donald Trump, although he has been known to do the opposite of both. He defended Trump sometimes and he went after Obama sometimes. He was very disappointed in Obama and has said so And his million-dollar contribution he laments. But he also has a long history of repeatedly taking reactionary positions on many subjects, especially war. On his previous Comedy Central show, Politically Incorrect, Marr praised the Vietnam War as necessary, arguing it helped end the Cold War. The U.S. officially began its involvement in Vietnam 36 years before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In 2013, he joked about killing anti-war activist Medea Benjamin after she interrupted Obama and recanted his anti-Iraq war position, claiming Iraq is doing better than I thought it would be. He praised George H.W. Bush for creating a country there. And he championed Israel's 2014 assault on Gaza, tweeting, dealing with Hamas is like dealing with a crazy woman who's trying to kill you. You can only hold her wrist so long before you have to slap the shit out of her. As that last comment suggests, sexism and rampant Islamophobia are also constant features of Mars ideology, and I know also that Islamophobia is the the label of the right, is what people say at least. I'm not Islamophobic. I believe that Muslim extremists are the scum of the earth and should be put to death has nothing to do with their Muslim religion. It has to do that they want to kill me and destroy America. In 2009, he called a woman who was reportedly choked by her boyfriend, a B-I-T-C-H. I I know I just said it earlier, but I was in character. I'm not going to say it here. Claiming that it was surprising he did not attack her sooner. He also described Islam as a cancer and told Representative Keith Ellison, a Muslim, that the Quran is a hate-filled holy book. He defended the arrest of a 14-year-old, Ahmed Mohammed, for bringing a clock into school, comparing him to an ISIS fighter, and expressed alarm over the rising popularity of the name Mohammed, worrying that the Western world was being taken over by Islam. He also offered advice to Western women. Talk to women who have ever dated an Arab man, he insisted. The reviews are not good. Mar supports the Israeli occupation of Palestine. I love Israel, he says, declared the celebrity atheist, professing his affection for the ethno-religious state. The point is that Marb's beliefs, actions, and outbursts, if they are coherent at all, are not consistent with liberalism and are of anything more in keeping with a right-wing shock jock like Rush Limbaugh, as I said earlier. Indeed, when asked, he has been explicit about his ideology. I'm a libertarian, he said to Rolling Stone. I would be a Republican if they would be Republicans, which means that I like the Barry Goldwater Republican Party, even the Reagan Republican Party. His choice in naming the two figures whose mission was to upend the liberal order, often through appeals to racism and white nationalism, is telling. I want a mean mean old white man to watch my money, he added, because government is a sieve that takes as much money as it can and gives it away, usually needlessly. That sound like a liberal? Yet corporate media continue to describe him as a liberal. Newsweek so did so in a story about him criticizing the Democratic Party. The Washington Times did the same when it reported on his recent claim that the new far-left Democrats' ideas are cancer and they look crazier than Trump to him, while Fox News reminded his readers twice that Marr was a liberal in a story about him praising Trump's handling of the economy. And therein lies the utility for the media in persisting to describe the self-described libertarian as a liberal. It allows media to formulate, he's a liberal but... Conservative criticizes Democrats, is not going to drive any clicks, whereas Liberal praises Trump does. It is a classic example of the man-bites-dog phenomenon. Ultimately, Marr has built up an impressive following and continues to espouse snarky elitist hot takes weekly for HBO, earning an estimated $10 million per year doing so. Call him a racist, a bigot, or an astute businessman, just don't call him a liberal. I'm going to show you this video now with Megyn Kelly, formerly of Fox News, who then went over to some liberal channel and then got kicked off of that because her ratings sucked ass, and then had a conversation with Bill Maher. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm going to put myself in the lower corner here, and we're going to do it together. Here we go in three, two, one. New rules are about to start. If you watch the show, you know what that means. Here you go.
2: Okay, so I want to talk to you about the schools because I really just wanted you back here because I read this that you took your kids out of the school in New York, and I have been hearing anecdotally very much the same thing from many parents. You know, um, parents confide in me, I guess, because I don't have kids. It usually starts with, you're so lucky you don't have kids. (laughs) (laughs) And then I (laughs) hear about their problems. But just tell us why, basically, you did this.
1: Yeah. Well, we loved our schools, uh, we were in the New York City private school system. Our boys went to an all-boys school and our daughter to an all-girls school. Love Our teachers love the, you know, students and the faculty and the parents. And they were definitely leftists. You know, I mean, we're more center-right, but that was fine. You know, my, my whole family are Democrats. It wasn't like I was bothered by the...
0: Now, Megyn Kelly had a lot of negative things to say about Donald Trump. Now, she is center-right. And since she has left the liberal media, she's back on the trope trying to get in good with Republicans. And she's doing a fair job. This is definitely one where she represents most people, even Democrats, feel about critical race theory. And once again, I have heard every debate on critical race theory. Nobody is saying we should not teach African-American history, Pacific Islander history, Indians history. Boston Red Sox history, okay, fine, that's good. Just stop blaming all white people for everything bad that happens in people's lives and keep white privilege, toxic masculinity, white superiority, all this bullshit out of our schools. We don't want our kids to hear it and they do not need to carry that mantra. Megyn Kelly believes the same thing. And here's an interesting thing, so does Bill Maher.
1: That they leaned a bit left, but then they went hard left. Then they started to take a really hard turn towards social justice stuff. And at our boys' school in particular, it started with, when our son was in third grade, they unleashed a three-week experimental trans-education program on these eight- and nine-year-old boys. And it wasn't about support. It was about, we felt like it was more about trying to convince them, like, hey, come on over. And the boys started to get confused, and they had to implement this system where they raised their hand, if you're really confused, put up a one. If you're just a little confused, too, like... How old are they now? They were 8 and 9 at the time. And we
0: If I put up a 5 is that a bad sign? I've talked about this. We've talked about this with the wheel on the bus for the drag queen and all this other stuff and saying that there I have a bunch of promising young drag queens out there. It's indoctrination. It's letting them it's fine. If you want to let them know that that being a trans person is okay, I agree with you. Educate, teach them what a trans person is. But don't recruit. That's not what this is about. It would be just as bad if white nationalists were literally recruiting in the schools. You can't recruit for BLM and Black Panthers from our schools either. They're too damn young. Give them a chance to learn about Sesame Street, G.I. Joe, Strawberry Shortcake, playing with Barbie, playing doctor, for God's sakes. As kids, we all did it, too. Give them a chance to grow up somewhat normally before you taint their ideas and activate them. They talk about this next.
1: And so did a lot of other parents to the point where the school had to apologize for that one, which they very rarely did. Then our kindergartner was told to write a letter to the Cleveland Indians objecting to their mascot. Now, he's six. Like, can he learn how to spell Cleveland before we, you know, activate him? He lives in New York City. We got buses, we got subways, we got crime. He's got things to worry about other than social activism. And if he's going to be activated... Doug and I should do it. Not not a kindergarten teacher didn't run by it. And this is
2: what I've heard from parents. And these are all liberal, by the way, people. Of course. Who say, it, on this... my kids are not ready to be told they're white supremacists.
1: That's right. And, and this... I, I'm
2: not ready to be told that. Can I tell you, Bill, that. On you this, know,
1: this, we're, not, we're not left and right, we're not black and white. We're not, it's, this, is a, this is a question but, of reason and unreason.
2: But not... you talked about this letter that the school put out. So
1: this is on the racist.
2: Can I read some of the things that are from this letter yep. unless people think I'm losing my mind? Um, this is in the... This is a... There's a killer cop sitting in every school where white children learn. (laughs) White children are left unchecked and unbothered in their homes, one sentence starts. Well, how old do you have to be before you can just be unchecked and unbothered? Right. You know, what what age do you get (laughs) bothered? Uh, I'm tired of white people reveling in their state-sanctioned depravity, snuffing out black life with no consequences. Uh, You know, uh, go reform white kids. You know... it bothers me so much that I have to be on this side of this issue,
1: yeah,
2: because I've always been a civil rights advocate, yep. you know and, and and don't make me tucker Carlson <laughs> you're the fucking nuts, this is insane, yep. uh, as black bodies drop like flies around us by violent white hands, there is racist problems in this country, but this is hyperbole, mm-hmm. and this is making people crazy yeah and and, and children, what is I mean It's just not the way we get to the promised land.
1: Absolutely not. It's divisive, it's racist, and it's having exactly the opposite effect of the one they intend. And it is not that all the black people in our school or other schools are in favor of this kind of talk. My friend Coleman Hughes, who's twenty-four, he's a liberal, he Biden voter, you know, Coleman. He's been speaking out about this as a black man, saying, How dare you presume to know how I feel to try to I mean it's pejorative to him. Like The the whites are the ones who understand, who are arrogant and
0: in control. Gotta love somebody who can use the word pejorative effectively in a sentence. Listen, does that sound like Bill Maher? Bill Maher has done this repeatedly throughout his career. Now, does this absolve him of all the things that he has said wrong? No. And does it absolve me of everything I've said right? Or does it? cast me in a different light simply because now there's no respect for me because I defend Bill Maher. This isn't the first time I've defended Bill Maher, and I'm going to do it again. And every time a leftist person not only agrees with me, but maybe disagree with me and teach me something, I'm going to call it out. What is so wrong with agreeing with people who are on the opposite side of us? Well, isn't that what we want? How many of you said, oh, well, we just want the left to actually listen to us? Why? So you can then tell them to fuck off and that they're wrong? Because that's what you're doing. This is a stalemate. This is the two opposing armies who are faced off for battle and both are fearful to go ahead and start because neither want the war. But the snake goes across the middle of the lines and one of the generals pulls the swords to cut off the snake's head and the battle begins. You can't sit here and ask for to be listened to, to be reasoned with, to be accepted for what you believe, and then castigate other people out simply because it's not what you think. Bill Maher isn't wrong about everything, and either are the leftists, and either are socialists. There are some ideas that we all can agree on. Does that mean we have to condone? Does that mean we have to accept? Does that mean we have to preach it or believe in it? No, no. But if we don't know what they're saying, how do we know what's right and wrong? If the only people we listen to are us and ourselves, how are we supposed to grow? Where's the comfort zone? We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let's get back to Bill. I want to thank HBO for letting me use that, considering you didn't give me permission to do so. Don't you flag my video. I'm a small-time cast. But let's talk about Bill Maher. The left-leaning host of HBO's Real Time critiqued liberals for refusing to accept Limbaugh's apology, even as advertisers abandoned the conservative radio pundit. He said, hate to defend Rush Limbaugh, but he apologized. Liberals looking bad, not accepting. Also, hate intimidation by sponsor pullout. How about the time he defended Laura Ingram, even though he agrees with her vehemently? About the time he ended his show complaining that the Democrats had become a no-fun party in comparison to the Republicans. I had that show. One of my highest volume shows is when I compared Tucker Carlson to Bill Maher and called them both out. That show went viral in my world, which isn't that much. But still, I was really stoked about that. I'll try to link it right here. What time? 3340. Got it. Once upon a time, the right were the ones offended by everything, Mars said. They were the party of speech codes and blacklists and moral panics and demanding some TV shows had to go. Well, now that's us. We're the fun suckers now. We sucked the fun out of everything. Halloween, the Oscars, childhood, Twitter, comedy. It's like woke kids on campus decided to be all the worst parts of the Southern Baptists. He continued, if Democrats had always policed morality as hard as they do now, they'd be down a lot of heroes. No FDR, JFK, RFK, LBJ, Clinton, Martin Luther King. He attacked woke language and does repeatedly. Bill Maher, I don't like Alex Jones, but Alex Jones gets to speak in this country. He defending calling China virus by its actual name, the China fucking virus. He defends Israel. He singled out Muslim extremists and the Muslim religion for preaching all the good things, but the abhorrent as well. Death to infidels, America, Christians, etc. He defies the cancel culture. And folks, two things can be true at the same time. Abortion is truly a brutal practice, and the government should leave the choice with a woman and her doctor. I believe that. The Second Amendment is a fundamental right, and certain people should never be allowed to own a gun. See, it's easy. You can look at Bill Maher for some of the times he has fought fervently for conservatives and still thinks his decision to defend liberals is misguided. It's okay. Don't have to think that everything's mutually exclusive to one side. That is what makes us unique. That is where we learn. And that is how we overcome fear. Fear which brings me into my next topic. Do I want you to watch Bill Maher tonight? No. Do I want you to love him? Do I want you to shrine and worship him? No. But I have listeners who actually listen to him, Joe Rogan and me, and it was pointed out tonight that they listen to all three. And good for you because I am definitely somewhere in the middle of Joe Rogan and Bill Maher, even though I can't touch them intellectually, professionally, or with the quality of my show. But I am drinking milk, and I am getting bigger every day. Nothing to fear but fear itself. I'm sorry. Oh I'm sorry, did I? Sorry, I didn't mean to. Sorry for that. Stop saying you're sorry. I'm sorry. Um, what the hell are you apologizing for? The amount of times I have made an apology so casually, so effortlessly is incomprehensible. As in the number of times I have used the phrase, I'm sorry. I can't even count because I've lost track. For me, this habit of over-apologizing began at a really early age. I can remember tripping over the stairs and muttering, I'm sorry, to the stair I tripped over, or even an oops, my bad, to the wall I crashed into. Of course, these events seem comical now, but as I reflect back on them, I realize there was a great deal of regret that I held for the supposed harm I had caused to things that didn't even have true feelings. Over time, my growing use of apologies intertwined itself with my daily routines. It was as common as, and as easy as waking up in the morning or drinking a glass of water. I did it effortlessly and without a thought. At the time, though, I couldn't comprehend that this habit was routed to something much deeper within myself, but as I grew older, I observed many people countlessly making the same mistakes that I did. Conversation starters like the common hi or hey, how are you? We overuse them out of necessity. Try to have a meaningful conversation with somebody before you want to lambast them. How does it start? hey man, how was your weekend? Oh, it was pretty good. Okay. Why didn't you have that fucking TPS report on my desk? It's usually the way it goes, or at least in my conversations. But how is it that something as intricate as an apology could be classified as a common phrase? So I did a search, and you wouldn't believe where I found the phrase, I'm sorry. It's number four on the list as one of the most popular things to say in a conversation. We are taught to use apologies to make amends with those we have hurt, and I have absolutely no problem with that at all. But what I do have a problem with is overusing a phrase that really just gives away a part of ourselves every time we use it. Think about it. There is a great deal of thought that comes to garnering the courage to apologize for something you have done wrong, and when it is done, it is incredibly meaningful. But overusing it, well, if I'm going to apologize for everything in my life, then that won't Won't that take away from the point of me apologizing in the first place? Pain is irreplaceable, so I can understand using an apology in certain scenarios, but more often than not, I, even you, will casually mutter the phrase, I'm sorry, without thinking twice about it. Why is it, though, that we always feel the need to take the first step and apologize? I can tell you the reason I apologize. To start, I am someone who is adamant to owning up to the things that I've done wrong, always. I'm unafraid of the consequences associated with the actions I have done in the past, and I will certainly admit when I am wrong. But I'm also someone, and I'm sure you can relate to this, that sometimes feels like it is their job to apologize for everything in the hopes of redemption, not even from just the person I've hurt, but redeeming myself as a do-gooder, Captain America, so to speak. I do it on the show. But here we face a dilemma, apologizing to people that don't understand why we are apologizing. The $10 I put into a machine over time loses value. The dollar still has meaning, but it's essentially worthless when it's gone from my using it. That's how the apology is in today's context. We overuse it to the point that it loses its meaning. So the more I apologize to one person, the more confused they become as to why am I even apologizing? And two, what does my hundredth apology even mean to them by that point? I wanted to gain a little more context as to why people overuse overuse apologies, so I did some research, looked at some therapists, and I also looked at my own adolescent to gain and garner some knowledge. The umbrella term that was used to describe situations where we tend to overuse apology is called owning up. Owning up means taking it upon ourselves to accept that we did something wrong but also that it comes from a place of feeling as though we are burdens, enough to warrant an apology. It causes us to own things that really aren't ours to own in the first place, and it really just opens a door to foster unhealthier relationships, not just within ourselves, but within the people around us. I have to have this conversation with employees all the time. Stop apologizing. You don't need to apologize. When you need to apologize, I will let you know this is something you need to apologize for. One of my favorite things that is said during my research is owning everything in life is not appropriate. We have to own what we can own. An apology is noble, and yes, I absolutely get it. I know that there are times when you just have to be noble and accept that you really did something wrong. That needs to be owned up to. But being honest with both myself and you as my listener, we need to come up to the realization that we are not the burdens that we so often see ourselves as, and it's detrimental to who we are and our own self-worth and self-esteem. Most importantly, you don't have anything to fucking apologize for. Be brave. Growth and comfort can't ride the same horse, folks. It's a lesson that holds true for all of life. What we want most will always require embracing discomfort and taking action despite our fear that we'll fail or fall on our face. In the end, there is no substitute for courage, no shortcut to bravery. To become the person you most need to be and create the life you most yearn to live, you must be willing to do the things that scare you again and again and again. There is no magic formula to forever, forever liberate your you from fear, nor would it serve you if there was. However, there are specific things you can decide to do that will over time help you to fear less and reclaim the power that fear too often wields. Own it. Bring your fears into the light. Fear is wired into our psychological DNA to help us avoid situations that could cause us pain, injury, loss, or death. The problem is, is that while fear exists to keep you safe, It can keep you too safe. It's why you have to own your fears, lest they own you. And that may seem formulaic, but it's true. The things we fail to own and acknowledge about ourselves ultimately find ways of showing and sabotaging our success. By denying our fear or pushing it away, it buries itself deeper, and its shadow grows longer. So confronting the truth about what scares you most is an essential first step towards reclaiming the power it has held over you. Or two, tame it. Rain in the catastrophe. Our imagination is a wondrous thing. Without it, the most beautiful works of humankind would never have been brought into existence. Yet, when fueled by fear, our imagination can drive us to underestimate ourselves and overestimate the potential negative consequences of taking action. By turning shadows into monsters, our imagination can fool us into believing that danger lurks around every corner and that we're safer staying exactly where we are. Catastrophe is the tendency to jump to the worst case scenario as the most likely or only outcome in any situation. It is a terrible habit. And once you break this, it will become easier like an exercise. But here's the thing. It doesn't say throw caution to the wind. Be suspect. Think of the negative, but also think of the potential positive outcome of any situation. You don't have to be a half glass full or half empty person. You can just worry about the glass. When you balk at the prospect of doing something outside your comfort zone, try asking yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? And then sitting with the fear that arises. Own the fear. Then tame the fear by asking yourself, so what would I do If that happened, repeat this cycle for each worst case scenario you can envision. In this way, you will come to know that even if the worst did happen, which is often highly unlikely, it would not kill you. Rather, it would introduce you to yourself on a whole new level. You would learn, you would grow, and you would emerge from it a wiser, braver, and better version of yourself than you were before, or you will repeat the mistake until you do. Daring to expose yourself to those monsters in your head is ultimately far less frightening than spending your entire life running from them, even when they're not there. Taming your fears also opens up space to ask yourself, what's the best that could happen? Name it. Call out your critic. Who are you to do that? You don't know what you're doing. What will everyone think? You'll make a fool of yourself. You don't know what you're doing. Stick to what you know. No one can escape their inner voice, that is our own worst critic, who urges caution at every step and preaches pessimism at every opportunity, yet everyone can learn to relate to it for what it is, the most primal part of our being, simply trying to keep us safe. It just has a rather primitive way of doing it. When the voice of fear in your head or in the pit of your stomach is at its loudest, it's because it's feeling the most threatened. Giving your fear a name helps you to recognize it for what it is, its emotion. It's not reality, and it's not you. And it certainly doesn't deserve to hold the power to keep you from taking center stage in your own life. Grab it by the throat and kick it in the fucking balls. Doesn't matter what you call your inner voice, little me, doubting Debbie, chicken little, annoying fucker, only that it helps you realize that you are not your fear and your fear is not you. So the next time your fear starts reminding you of all the risks, like an overprotective parent lecturing a child, acknowledge its concern and then move the fuck on with all the authority you can muster own. Let it know who's boss. Flip it. Rethink risk. Playing it safe can be a high risk approach. You And all human beings excel at imagining how awful we'll feel if we take a risk and we fail. Yet we're often lousy at imagining how we'll feel a year from now if we choose to do nothing. We tend to focus on only what could go wrong if we exit our comfort zone. It's only rarely that we stop to consider what we put at risk if we stay put in our comfort zone, much less get really honest with ourselves about it. You can flip your fear. Of risk by stepping into the shoes of your future self and imagining how you'll feel in the years to come. One of my favorite lines I tell people is, will you give a shit in five years? No. Well, then why do you care now? Either let it go or go on Oprah and get it the fuck over with. If you've let the fears that's undermined your actions until now continue to pilot your life, you won't realize what you're in the present and what you're missing now. Visualize yourself staring at your reflection in a mirror. 10 even 25 years from now, after you've allowed your fear to call the shots, ask yourself what your fear has cost you. Is it a girl on a train, like a wonderful movie series with Ethan Hawke, and he's afraid to talk to her? What would have happened if he wouldn't have? How different would his life be? Would my life be different if I didn't join the military? I didn't meet my wife in Wyoming? What, where would I be now? What would I be? And would I be more fearful or less fearful today? At the end of life, life, most people regret the risks they didn't take, far more than those they did, so don't discount the cost of inaction. Plus, things aren't working now generally. They don't get better when left unattended. They get worse. Playing it safe can grow increasingly costly as it exacts a mounting toll on your health, wealth, career, relationship, life. Flip your fear, and your future self will thank you. Embody it. Tap your inner brave heart. The capacity for greatness resides within every one of us, without exception. It's just that some of us have been living inside a story about our own inadequacy for so long that we've become strangers to the bravest parts of ourselves. It doesn't need to stay that way. Simply by shifting your physiology, you can loosen fear's grip and reconnect to your inner heart. How do you do that? Try this experiment. Stand or sit tall, as though there were a string pulling up through your head. So you are long, tall, and strong. Bring your shoulders back. Wear a quiet smile on your face lift your chin and look gently upward hold in your stomach muscles place your feet shoulder width apart firmly rooted to the ground take three big deep breaths and imagine a time you felt like you could take on the world strong capable confident purposeful unstoppable breathe into that feeling clench your fists for five seconds and store that feeling in them now connected to your bravest self visualize yourself doing the very thing you know you need to do to move forward The life you most want to do whatever has been tugging at your heart for too long. What is it you must do? What are you? Where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing? What are you saying? What are you creating? Picture yourself taking bold, self-assured action. Picture the people around you reacting to you as someone who knows their own worth and what they want as someone to be admired, to be respected, to be reckoned with. Feel the power of that moment. Take hold of it. Remember it. Own it and use it. And everything else, lose it. Risk it. Take the leap. I remember the first time I ever got up on stage to deliver a speech at a major conference. I was so fucking nervous. I felt nauseous. But then I took a deep breath. I focused on the mission that had brought me to that point, And out I walked, secure in the numbers and the results and the methodology that I had created that would transfer effectively to other people and it would make sense. Not because I was delivering it but because of the consequences if I did it unsuccessfully. Within moments, my fear had vanished. And by the time I had finished, I was wondering why I ever doubted myself. We all come to moments throughout our lives where we have to let go of the safety of where we are now and venture into the uncertainty of the future. That moment requires courage, lots of it. Yet the more often you put yourself out there, out on the limb, where only the daring venture to go, out in front of the very people who can open new doors, buy your wares, test your talent, build your tribe, or broaden your thinking, the sooner you'll strike it lucky. Though of course, it won't be luck at all. You have earned it. We fail far more than timidity than we ever do with over-daring. There will never be a perfect time to make the change, take the chance, and step forward to the future that is waiting for you, but the next best time will be now. By simply daring to take a single step in the direction that inspires you, you send a signal to yourself and to the universe that you're serious about creating a future that is different, bigger, and better from your past. Don't wait to be discovered. Don't wait until you're master. Don't wait to be given permission. Don't wait for the universe to send you a message in a bottle or for Mr. or Miss. Because Miss Wright and Mr. Wright are usually wrong and they will not show up on your doorstep above all don't wait until you're a hundred percent sure you can't fail before you take that first exhilarating and terrifying step toward the future just get started right away as in now the universe will do its bit but you have to do yours if you're 350 pounds you know what's better three forty nine Every day, make a focus, do one push-up, go the extra step, read a page, one more page, one more lift, one more rep, one more time, until it becomes muscle memory, until it becomes habit, until it gets easy. And then when it's easy, make it harder the next day. SEAL Team 2 has a great saying, the only easy day was yesterday. If you live your life like that every single day, you will achieve anything you want. Build it train the brave. If you haven't lifted weights for a while or ever, lifting five pounds may push your limits. But if you train every day over time, five pounds will start to feel pretty light. And soon you'll be looking for the 10 pound weights. I remember the salt bags that I'd have to put into the water softener when I was a kid. They were 50 pounds a piece. I couldn't budge one for the life of me. Even as an adult, now, I toss 50-pound bags on my shoulder, and I can carry four of them on both shoulders to the water softer with no problem, and it still seems light. That's 200 pounds. It may not be the biggest. I may not be the strongest, but it takes bravery to put that bag on your shoulder and give it a try and fail and then do it again. The same is true for bravery. It's like a muscle. If you keep showing up, keep practicing, and don't let discomfort deter you, over time, those initial acts of courage become less daunting. And you find yourself doing bigger and braver things with less effort than you expected. That's because courage is a skill. And like all skills, it can be learned and mastered. It just takes a committed effort. As you grow more comfortable with being uncomfortable, fewer things will scare you. But don't forget to continue to challenge. Doing easy is never going to be hard. It's never going to be as rewarding as pushing yourself further and farther than you've ever gone before. It's by acting as though you are fearless that you start to actually become fear less. Once you own them, tame them, flip them, and take action, any lingering fears will be easily managed until they shrink and fade away. I have left my comfort zone a thousand times and I've learned that every time you take action in the presence of fear, you dilute its power and amplify your own. Even better, you come to realize how little you have ever needed to doubt yourself to begin with. So feel your fear, but be brave and take action anyway. What you want most is riding on it, even if you don't realize it or believe it just yet. Folks, that's it for my show tonight. 53 minutes. We have a consistent pattern forming here. I'm always fearful of going over 60 minutes, and I haven't. And that's a good thing. I'm facing my fears. Won't you do it with me, folks? Please like, share, and subscribe if you wouldn't mind. Make sure you stay abreast of all my new videos and posts by liking, sharing, following, subscribing. You can click the little YouTube envelope right there, or you can back out of the video. Hit like, hit follow, leave a comment. All of that will keep you relevant, and make sure that my feed hits your feed. Facebook is constantly trying to dwindle my feed down. You can stop that by like, sharing, following, and subscribing. I would appreciate it, and God doesn't kill a puppy when you do. Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255, press 1. Remember, 22 veterans commit suicide a day. Don't just remember them on Red Friday. Remember them every day. Help a veteran, traumatic brain injury, anxiety, depression, PTS are all very real. PTS Awareness Day is in two days. On Sunday... Please, especially now, reach out to a vet. If you can't do it, if you don't have that conversation, reach out to me. I will call them with you. And if that doesn't work, have them go to don'tinfriendme.com. Click on the VCL link and they will be directed to a VCL operator. And if you need help, remember, VCL won't turn you down even if you're just a civilian, which is still just as important as one of our veterans. They will help you, take care of you, and get you to the right place. Folks, my name is Matthew Spear. This was Don't Unfriend Me. This was episode 177 or some shit like that. I will not be here tomorrow or the next day, but I will be back Monday with an all-new show for you to listen to. Remember, we can agree. We can disagree. You can love me. You can hate me. Just don't unfriend me. Good night. Have a good weekend. Be safe, and God bless.